word, the book of Romans chapter 3. We're moving now to the theological grounding of the doctrine of sin and the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read to verse 8. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that God may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of his holy word. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we would ask that we might find our proper place in relationship to you, that we would not doubt your goodness that we would not seek to put you on the stand or accuse you of injustice or untruth, but to humbly submit to you as the only God of heaven and earth and to worship and adore you, that you might do this by your spirit. So compel our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, there have been a couple of movements already in the book of Romans by way of theme. Paul begins... With a greeting, simple enough. And as Paul is writing this letter, let us remember that he is writing it as a fundraising epistle to the church in Rome because he longs to go to Spain, but he saves that for the end of the letter. He doesn't start asking for money until he has communicated the gospel. This is probably the order of things and the way it ought to be after all. And in this support-raising letter, what Paul does at the beginning is he communicates what the true gospel is. He does this at the end of chapter 1. In verses 16 through 17, he speaks about salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And this is the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In order to be counted among the righteous, you must lay hold of Christ by faith. And when you do that, you get all of Christ. There is no second baptism of the Holy Spirit that must be done in order to be a true Christian. When you say, Christ is my Redeemer, all that he is and all that he has is yours in that moment. It doesn't ramp up. It just becomes yours. And this is what the scripture means, that even the faith that is a tiny little grain of mustard seed can move mountains. Why? Because it is not the measure of your faith, but the one to whom your faith clings. That is what makes faith glorious and powerful. 
Now, there are two objections to that in unbelief. There is the heathen who says, I don't like the wrath of God that is coming against me. And so instead of dealing with that wrath by confessing my sins, I will suppress and exchange it. And I'll go to some other religion, whether it's Mormonism or Islam or Judaism. <clears throat> in chapter 2, Paul is writing about the Jews in his day who denied Jesus as the Messiah and what they say in their kind of pharisaical righteousness is, at least I know that's a heathen. We do this in the church. At least I know that's a leftist, right? I know that's a, that's a blue guy. That's a black pill guy. I know, what the, I know what sinners are like, and that's one of them. I see the flags in his bio. And instead of clinging to Christ alone to justify, we hide behind this, this wall of righteous law, and we say, by knowing the law, I'm righteous. By knowing these things, I'm righteous. By doing these things, I am righteous. Except those who say, I'm circumcised, I bear in my body the covenant sign, yet in their hearts they do not bear the thing that the sign pointed to, which is what? Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What is it that Abraham had that counted him as righteous? It was not a little less skin. It was true faith. True faith. And so there are two objections there is the objection of licentiousness and there is the objection, perhaps you might say, of legalism. The problem with the Jews is this. By trusting in the works of the flesh and the human hand, they actually aggravate the charge against them because they denied the gospel that was preached to them clearly. Now those are the two anecdotal. Those are the two arguments that we see sort of biographical betrayals of the gospel. And now what Paul does in Romans chapter 3 is he turns to a theological ground for the biblical doctrine of sin. And I'm going to add another fancy word that you probably are all familiar with, and that is a biblical anthropology. Anthropology is not where you go and you know and you buy those bougie curtains. Isn't there a store called Anthropology? Yeah. And it, whatever. Anthropology is simply the study of what man is, who man is. Now, some of the faithful, uh, uh, famous anthropologists of our day, uh, the woman who went and spent time with the gorillas so that she could figure out what humans were like, which I find to be ironic. Um, all you have to do is go to a middle school and figure that out, right? Because they're kind of one and the same at times. I've seen that at least in young men that I've known. She is, though, endeavoring to do what? She is trying to figure out why humans are the way they are, but she believes that gorillas are actually our ancestors. It's an interesting dilemma, to be sure. What we need to do when it comes to forging and, and establishing a biblical anthropology is we need to go to the Word of God. And the first thing that the Bible has to say about the doctrine of sin is who God is in relationship to sinners. 
in order to have a proper founding of our doctrine of sin, a theological treatise of sin, we must begin with God as a true and just judge. And that's what I want to cover this morning. Two points. We're going to move quickly. Unbelief and blessing, and then second, truth and lies. Unbelief and blessing is the first point, and then the second point is truth and lies. Unbelief and blessing. Paul asks the question, in light of what he has just said regarding circumcision, because the impression would be, after you read through Romans 2, what's the point of circumcision? Was God just setting Israel up for greater condemnation by giving them circumcision? Was he just giving them a weapon that they would just shoot themselves with? And if that's the case, how can God be just and good? And so Paul anticipates that question. Here it is. What advantage, then, has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Now let's be very clear what Paul means by Jew. When he says Jew here... He does not mean strictly those who are ethnically Jewish, but who are ethically, morally, religiously Jewish. He is talking about those who in his day cried out against Christ, crucify him. Because there were Jews on that day who were watching Jesus put to death, being put to death, and they mourned his death. His mother, John the beloved disciple, all of the apostles in the upper room, they were all Jews. But they were Jews by birth. They were believers by faith. So when Paul speaks of Jews in the book of Romans, he's not talking about people that live in Israel. He's not talking about people whose mothers were Jewish. He is talking about those who incorrectly hung on to those things as the Pharisees did, the external keeping of the law with no heart of faith. That's the Jew. The question then is, what advantage did the Jews have? Was it profitable that they had circumcision? And the answer to that question is, absolutely. You betcha. Or as Paul would say, much in every way. Chiefly, here's his answer as he elaborates, because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now what are the oracles of God? The oracles of God are simply a summary, he's saying in a summary way, all of God's Old Testament revelation. Now the question for us is, what is the sum and substance of Old Testament revelation? How can you boil it down? And if you were to take all of Old Testament revelation, like you would say... Um, you're boiling down something into a concentrate. What is left after it all boils away? Not that that would happen. I'm using a metaphor here. At the very center, that most clear point of all revelation is that the Messiah is coming into the world to save sinners. And the only way that that Messiah is your Messiah is you lay hold of him by faith. And so you have men who claim either by, through sort of this secular understanding of the teachings of Scripture, that there is nothing of the law in the Old Testament that points to God's desire to possess our hearts. That is completely and utterly untrue. 
In fact, God commands our hearts. What do you think the Psalms are? Have you ever come to worship and the psalmist says in the Psalter, be happy, rejoice, or better yet, mourn over the condition of your sin. You see, our problem is we are happy with our sins and we mourn over the call to righteousness. And the Psalms would say, you've got to turn that thing around. You need to invert the whole way in which you are living. And so a question was put even to Dennis Prager recently. What do you say about adultery? Have you heard this? Dennis Prager is a Jew by birth, and he is secular by confession. And he says, the Bible in the Old Testament has nothing to say about our hearts. Now that is so patently false on the face of it. But oftentimes we live this way. In fact, God would have our hearts, and he would have us see that throughout the Old Testament, all of the types, that is, those little things in the past that point to something greater coming, that is, the temple is a type of what? The heavenly dwelling place that God is going to call us into to live with him. Or the altar is a type of what? The place upon which the Messiah will die to take away our sins. Or Moses is a type of what? A Messiah who leads us out of Egypt into the promised land. Actually, it's Joshua who leads us into the promised land. And in fact, Joshua and Jesus have the same name. Yeshua. The one who leads us out of the wilderness. He conquers all of his and our enemies. And he delivers us into that land of peace and promise. And in Christ, we are all home together. We're home. We are not a pilgrim people. We are a people who are at home. Because Christ has delivered it. And all of this is in the Old Testament. So that when the apostles are writing the epistles, they're not writing anything new. They're just saying, from the prophets, from Moses, from David, here is the gospel. And even when Lazarus and the rich man in that parable, the rich man is in Abraham's bosom, and he is crying out from that place, who will deliver me? He cannot be delivered. And though he says then to Abraham, Abraham, will you send Moses back from the dead and go preach to my brother? And what does Abraham say? Do you think that he would believe a man raised from the dead? He has whom? He has whom? He has the Old Testament. What is Abraham admitting there? He has enough to lay hold of the Messiah by faith. And so the argument is this. You can never say that God has not made it clear. The advantage that the Jew had is that all of this was given to them. The reason that they did not believe was because they had sinful, rebellious, unjust hearts. They had the oracles of God. And not only that, but it wasn't all. It was just some. Many did believe. And many believe that we're not even Jews. What does Ruth confess? And here is a Moabitess. She confesses to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. 
Now, the modern-day evangelical goes, I'm not sure if that is enough to fill a content of a credible profession of faith. Why? I don't know. Can it get any clearer than the church is my church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the God of the Bible is my God? Is that not what we confess when people come and they join? What is Ruth saying? I am an Israelite. I am not of Israel, but I am of Israel. And throughout the scriptures, we see this time and time again. There are those, what was Abram before he became a true Israelite? Or Gideon, what was the first call given to Gideon? Though born a Jew, his father was an idolater. And the first call that he had was to go into his father's camp and to destroy the Baal that sat in his yard. And he was threatened with death by the servants of his own father. How is this not a picture of what Christ will come to do in and through uh, his death, burial, and resurrection except topple all the idols? Now, I know that we now have the advantage of looking back and saying all of this points to Christ. And it is true that we must say that in the Old Testament that it is the Messiah concealed but it is not the Messiah concealed completely. For there is everywhere callings to embrace the one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. So what is the advantage then? They had it all. 39 books devoted to proclaiming the coming of the Messiah to the rebuke of their waywardness and sin, accusations of idolatry and calls to repentance, and time and time again, so many rejected it. They had the whole deposit of revelation. Why then did they not believe? Because they were at heart idolaters. They failed to trust God and they put him to the test. And this is how they lost their advantage. And we see this in verse 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Again, a question answered. Certainly not, this time in the negative. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. You know that quote? It's from Psalm 51, 4. Here is the king of Israel, David. Who does the king of Israel have to confess to? No one, if he does not wish. But is he a righteous king? If he does not acknowledge that his throne is a, under the throne that is above every throne of heaven and earth? When David is confessing his sins in Psalm 51, the reason he says to God against you and you only have I sinned is because he understands that the only justifier of sinners is the one to whom he prays for forgiveness. David understands rightly the order of authority and responsibility. David has sinned against God. David's sin with Bathsheba against Uriah and the whole nation of Israel does not invalidate God's authority to judge. What does it in fact do? It simply reinforces the reality that men sin. 
even kings, and especially kings. But the advantage is lost in this way. When you see the sign and seal and you miss it for what it actually calls you to do, circumcision is what? It is a sign and seal of our need, like baptism, to have our sins dealt with in a bloody way. And what is that bloody way whereby our sins have been fully removed or taken away from us? It is in the death of Christ upon the cross where he shed his blood and died, of which the writer of Hebrews says he suffered once, not over and over again as they celebrate in the Mass, not over and over again as we often think. He is not paying a debt to the devil. He is satisfying the wrath of his heavenly Father. And in that shed blood, once offered, he enters into the holy temple, and through that blood he mediates so that we might go in with him that we might dwell in the house of God. That's the gospel. You, you put in the terms of altar, of sacrifice, of propitiation, of atonement. That is what circumcision points to. But if you say circumcision is enough, or just mere baptism is enough, the outward sign, you have missed it. In fact, even in those vows or commitments that we ask of parents, the advantage that we give to parents through baptism is we give them this advantage. They can now say to their children, in the same way that Christ has made promises to you, you must respond how? By faith. Trust in those promises. Is this not the order of all salvation? Does God wait and say, man, I really wish Joby would extend an invitation for me to come inside his heart. That's called Pelagianism. It is a heresy. And as Athanasius would say, it's a damnable heresy. It will send you to hell. Do you know why? Because it robs from God in this same fashion the glory that he is due and the acknowledgement is that he is the primary operator. He is the primary mover in that whole thing that we call salvation. The advantage is lost, or was lost, when the Jews in the day of Christ rejected that true piety that comes by faith. And it is for this reason that the kingdom was taken away from them, as we see in Matthew 21, 43. Christ says, the kingdom will be taken away from you, and it will be given to another. Why? Because instead of believing upon Christ for salvation, they said what? Crucify the Lord of glory. Crucify the Lord of glory. The advantage was lost when they rejected the belief, that belief according to Paul's definition, that is salvation by faith alone. That advantage was lost when they denied the Messiah. And so what we find here is that unbelief and blessing are connected. When one believes, one is blessed. When one rejects, one is judged, and that leads us then to the second point. What Paul is endeavoring to do here also is to deal with the two charges that are brought against God as it relates to his authority as the sovereign king, which means what? He gets to tell us what to do, and he gets to tell us what we are. He gets to tell us what is true, and he gets to tell us whether or not we are good, or whether or not we will be judged. And so, 
He says, beginning in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Now, if you know the book of Romans, Paul does this a lot. He answers theological questions that people think are theological stumpers. Now, if you've ever had the opportunity to go out and witness to someone, you may or may not have heard this question. How can a good God do X? Don't take the bait. Or what about sin? How can a good God do X? There is a very simple answer to that question. And it is not, let's go through all the ways that God is good in history and how he's good in my life, and you share your personal testimony, because that doesn't do anything. Those are evidences of God's goodness, but that's not actually the question that people are asking. What is a person asking, or what is a person endeavoring to do when they say, how can God do X if he is this way? Here is what they're saying. I'm going to take God, and I'm going to put him on the stand. And while he is there, I will take that little, you know, the white cap that they still wear in England when they argue cases. And I, as a prosecutor, have some questions for God, and I'm going to say, how can this happen? Why do men do this? Because they want to be taken off from the stand. They do not wish to be judged. And because they feel judged, they want to lay at the feet of the true judge their own moral failures. And by doing so, what do they allow? Throw the case out. The judge is biased. You hear him? He's biased. And if the judge is biased, then I have a case. The problem with that is this. It doesn't work. In fact, in Romans 9, Paul argues, and he does a beg-the-question kind of thing, and a lot of people are not satisfied by that. So when someone says in Romans 9, how can God do this, what is Paul's answer? You don't actually get to ask the question. Because the clay doesn't get to say to the potter, what are you doing? Job learned this lesson. It is, in fact, the very heart of all wisdom. There are some questions that are invalid And here the question is this. If my sinning proves God's holiness, can I not just keep sinning? Now this sounds like the Romans 6 question, right? If by my sinning the grace of God increases, shouldn't I sin more? That has to do with the doctrine of grace. Here this has to do with the doctrine of God. Does my sinning not reveal God as judge. And yes, it does. But it does not mean that God is invalid or unjust when he brings judgment. Let's look at that again. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? That is, doesn't it actually make sense that God would judge me? And that if that's the case, am I not helping in my sin to prove the righteousness of God? No. God, I'm actually helping you out right now by cheating on my wife. Because what I'm doing is I'm showing just how righteous you are. Well, in that case, I'm sorry. 
That's not how it works. In fact, what is Paul's answer? It's not more rhetoric. It's just two words. Certainly not. Because if God tolerates your sin, what does that make him? An unjust judge. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? The problem with the world is not that there is a just judge. This is good for the world. The problem of the world is we do not believe in a just judge. We do not submit to his just judgment, and we do what instead? We judge for ourselves according to our truth, what is good, what is bad, what we can tolerate, and what we cannot. And do you not see the chaos in our day now? Look at the blasphemy laws. What are blasphemy laws? All a blasphemy law is, is who we say altogether can be the judge of what is right and wrong. And therefore, there is only one name that can be blasphemed, because there is only one just judge, and that is God. That is the God of the Bible, the God who made heaven and earth. Who do we say now is the just judge? Well, it's the person we get down and wash their feet for. It's the person that we are afraid to speak against lest we be canceled. And the world has always had these people. In North Korea, who is it? It is the great dictator. In the West, who is it? What's the alphabet people, right? You cannot speak against them, for if you do, what will happen? Your life will be made an utter desolate ruin. The only solution is this. That we come to the one who is the just judge and we say, I see the case you have against me. I'm not asking you to throw it out. I'm asking you to take all the charges that you have and put them upon your son so that I can go free. Because that's the only way that happens. And this is why Paul adds, in addition to this judgment, there is an element of truth. Justice and truth here are connected. Look at verse 7 and 8. I feel like I need to preach another sermon on this passage because it is sort of theologically, technically complicated. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, same logic here, right? Why am I also still judged as a sinner? Okay, this is the logic, parents, of your young children. But this is the logic that sinners devolve into when they understand that they are sinners, but they don't want to repent. Why? Because they want to keep on sinning. And in order to keep on sinning, they have to bend, they have to warp, they have to dismorph and change the law. Why am I still judged as a sinner if my evil means that God's goodness is further proven? Let us, into verse 7, do evil that good may come. Really? Are you buying this? What does Paul say? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, this is what people say we are saying. But that's not what we're saying. What are we saying? That the condemnation of those who reject the truth of God is a lie. Paul will not play the game. He will not say that this is the way things are. People may accuse us of this, 
and through our doctrine twist it. But the fact of the matter is this, that the truth of God is more manifest even through the lies of men. This is what Calvin says. Try to follow. It's a very helpful quote. For since these two things stand together, yea, necessarily accord, that means they go together, that God is true and that man is false, it follows that the truth of God is not nullified by the falsehood of men. For except he did now set those things in opposition, the one to the other, he would afterwards have in vain labored to refute what was absurd and show how God is just, though he manifests his justice by our unjustice or injustice. What Calvin is saying here is this, that in order to begin a proper understanding of the gospel, we must first upstream from the gospel that we receive that saves us, adhere to this doctrine of the truth and right judgment of a holy God. If we do not start there, we will not end downstream with the true gospel. What happens if you say in your heart and in a sort of systematized way with other people, you develop a religion that says God actually doesn't condemn sinners. Where does that take you in terms of the gospel? Far afield. Saints, it must, the gospel begins in the truth and the beauty and the glory and the saving efficacy of it in the headwaters of the doctrine of a just and true God. And this is where all of it starts. Whether it is the doctrine of election, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of salvation, if we are not willing to receive God as he is revealed in Scripture, we will not end up with the true gospel. We'll end up with some aberrant form of therapeutic moralism that saves no one. And not only will it not save them from hell, it will actually make their lives miserable. Because they never feel the satisfaction of their sins and the burden of them relieved at the cross of Jesus Christ. Which is why the path of deconstructionism and evangelicalism today ends up where? With just rote rejection, wholesale rejection of the scriptures altogether. And that is where it begins. That is why in our confession of faith, the next chapter after the doctrine of scripture is the doctrine of God. Because it is the headwaters of all proper gospel hope. And here's what Paul says. The injustice and the lies of men do not prove an unjust and lying God. In fact, what do they do? They actually prove that God alone is the only just and true judge. Because if it's up to us, heaven help us. I have judged all of you wrongly as a pastor. Is that not right? You have judged everyone wrongly. Because in every moment of every circumstance, I don't know. I don't know about that guy. I see him doing that thing. And then you see and it's this constant evolution of judgment. Praise God, I am not your judge. 
the scriptures, God shows us and God is our judge. And praise be to God that through his son, uh, we can be judged to be righteous. Let's pray. Lord.